the night our eyes changed. Rooms where love was made and unmade in a flash of the night. Rooms where memories drowned in fumes of poison. Rooms where futures were planned and the imagination of children built castles in the sky. Rooms where both the extraordinary and the mundane were lived become forever tortured graves of ash. Oh, you political class, so servile to corporate power. Justice, not hear him, not hear him scream. Please allow me to begin though 1.30am, heard the shouting from my window People crying in the street watching the burning of their kinfolk Grenfell Tower now, historically a symbol People reaching from their windows, screaming for their lives Pleading with their cries, trying to reason with the skies Dale youth birth champions, comparison is clear though That every single person in that building was a hero so don't judge our tired eyes in these trying times Cause we've been breathing in cyanide the entire night They say Yasin saw the fire and he ran inside Who thought that would be the site where he and his family died The street is like a graveyard, tombstone lurching over us Those shouting out to their windows, now wish they never woke them up When hope your worst enemy to go in this position Now it's flowers for the dead and printing posters for the missing Come home Justice, not hear him, not hear him scream. Of all those that witness this innocence in the faces of all those on the missing list, see hopes unfulfilled, ambitions never achieved. No, I'm not the only one that sees the dead in my dreams. Strive for the bravery of Yasin, artistic gift of Khadija. Every person a unique blessing to never be repeated. Strive for the loyalty of siblings that stay behind with their parents. Pray that every loved one lost can somehow make an appearance. We are like the last conversation with their dearest until we face what they face. We will never know what fear is. We are. For survivors, rehoused in the best place Not to be left sleeping in the west way For ten days we're For arrests made and debts paid And true numbers known For the families who kept faith with For safety and homes and love They are immortalised forever The only ghosts are us, I wonder Justice, not hear him, not hear him scream. To whom it may concern, 
at the Queen's Royal Borough of Kensington in Chelsea. Where is Yasin al-Wahhabi? Where is his brother Mehdi? Where is his sister Nur Huda? Where is their mother? And where is their father? Where is Noura Jamal? Where is her husband Hashim? Where is their children? Yahya, Firdaus, and Yaqub. Where is Nadia Lumeda? Where is Steve Power? Where is Dennis Murphy? Where is Marco Gotardi? Where is Gloria Trevisan? Where is Amal and her daughter Amaya? Where is Mohammed Nader? Where is Aliyawa Jafari? Where is Khadija Sayyid? Where is Maryam El Gawari? Where is her mother Sua? Tell us, tell us, tell us. Where is Rania Ibrahim and her two daughters? Where is Jessica Ubanora Miras? Where is Deborah Lamprao? Where is Muhammad Al Hajj Ali? Where is Nadia? Where is her husband Basim? Where are her daughters, Mina, Fatima, and Zainab, and their grandmother? Where is Zainab Deen and her son Jeremiah? Where is Ligaya Where is she? Where is Muhammad Nur Tuku? Where is Tony Dissi? Where is Maria Baz? Where is Fataya El Sanusi? Where is her son Abu Faraz? Her daughter. Where is Lucas James? Where is Farah Hamdan? Where is Omar Belkani? Where is their daughter, Lina? Where is Hamid Khani? Where is Hesham Rama? Where is Raymond Bernard? Where is Isaac Powell? Where is Marjorie Vital? And your son, Where is Komromiya? Where is his wife, Raz? Where are their children, Abdul Hanif? Abdul Hamid and Hosna? Where are Sakina and Fatima? Where is Burki Habtoum and her son, Baru? Tell us, tell us, tell us. Where is Stefan Antony? Where is Abdel Salam? Where is Khadija Khalif? Where are these people? Where are these people? There'll be ashes on your graves Like a phoenix we will rise The blood is on your hands There'll be ashes on your graves Like a phoenix we will rise That was Loki's Ghost of Grenfell featuring Michael Lil. Although this podcast at times tries to find light and humour in the themes that we discuss like mental health and social justice, I decided to include a full cut of this track to remind us of why we do what we do and how powerful a medium like music can be. Welcome to Three in a Crowd, the podcast that navigates the intersection between creativity, mental health and social change. This is the second series, so if you're joining us for the first time, welcome and feel free to go back to series one and check out the episodes there. My name is Vanda and I'll be talking to different artists and creative people about their work, but also to find out a little bit more about the thinking behind it. Now, for many people listening, Loki really needs no introduction as such an iconic hip hop artist and campaigner. I personally came across him around 2010 and what was interesting to me is that I would hear Loki's music on demonstration but then I would also hear him speak at a university or a political meeting and this merging of the street and academia or scholarship is something that I'm thinking about a lot. It's present in Loki's work too, having collaborated with artists like Immortal Technique, Akala, Dead Prez, The Arctic Monkeys, Baby Shambles, but then also his recent album Soundtrack to the Struggle 2 featured Noam Chomsky, Frankie Boyle and Ken Loach. He is well known for speaking on political issues from Palestine to Grenfell as you've just heard. He is also known, it's fair to say, as a bit of a heartthrob on the left, 
in part because he has a reputation of such integrity, which I think really comes across in this episode. I was lucky enough to work with Loki a few months ago at a conference that I held on sound and social justice, but I felt like there was so much more to talk about. So I'm really grateful that he's here now. So let's get into it. Okay, firstly, thank you very much for joining us on Three Ain't a Crowd. I wanted to start with a question, which may or may not come out slightly strange. We'll see how it goes. I was at a party the other night and a friend asked me, what are my slashes? And what she meant was, it sounds rude, but it isn't, I promise. What she meant was, how would you describe yourself in terms of uh for me, it might be that I'm an artist slash academic slash podcaster, etc. And given that you're so multifaceted, I'm really curious to know, what are your slashes? Well, um, that's a, a very interesting question, a great <laughs> icebreaker, I would say. Um, for me, I would say I am, you know, I don't want to sound too sort of grandiose, um, in sort of this description, this is just a way that I could be described, not necessarily a way that I choose to sort of de- be described and sort of go around the world um, introducing myself. But I would say maybe um, hip hop artist slash um, journalist, investigative journalist um, slash playwright um, slash TV producer slash um, poet maybe, slash youth worker, um, slash researcher, um, maybe slash thorn in the side of Keir Starmer. Um, That's probably the way I would describe myself, possibly. Okay, my immediate immediate pickup on that, though, is that in order? Um, Is that in order? Probably not. You know, if it were to be an order, I mean, the thing is with, and I'm, you know, lucky to be in this position because I've got many friends who have gone and got great qualifications. And a lot of it, I think, personally, I think some of it is down to a particular part of the war on terror, which has meant that uh, Middle Eastern, North African men of particular ages are you know, and it is represented in stuff like academia, for example, a study came out a couple of years ago that found that um, on sort of average, it seemed that academics of an Arab origin were paid less than their counterparts in some cases. Um, But I, I do feel that for some of my friends, they've gone through the sort of academic stuff that I went through in later life. And off the back of it, none of them are working in the fields that they studied um, to work in, um, and some of them even to a master's level. Um, whereas in my case, I, I, I got a master's, but I was able to, because of the music stuff, you know, the music exposure from it, exposure from doing music on the sort of level that I was doing it, enabled me to sort of launch pad into different places and to work in sort of different fields 
um, which I certainly wouldn't have been able to do without the sort of low key component of, uh, of who I am. Mm. So I guess if it was to be in order, you'd probably start with the, with the rapping stuff because that was from when I was 17 and almost everything else that I mentioned, maybe apart from youth work was related to the low key aspect, um, of who I am. I mean, also slash personal trainer slash English teacher. Those are two things that have nothing to do with low key. Um, they're qualifications that I've only really used on an informal basis, but I have those qualifications as a, you know, teacher of English to people that speak uh, TESOL, you know, um, not you know, the one where you can qualify to teach in schools, one where you can teach in language schools. So it's a different kind of qualification and less serious. Um, but I do also have a qualification as a personal trainer. But again, these were sort of backup things that I had, um, you know, in case I wasn't able to sort of live as a musician. But then around COVID came the point when I was able to get more into journalism and, you know, people were willing to, you know, help me sustain myself through journalism and investigative journalism. So it's been mm. great and a lot of fun. It, it's interesting, though, because when I was thinking about um, some of the descriptions that you might use or that I've heard other people describe you as, scholar is one that would come up almost immediately. And things like activist as well, but scholar definitely was kind of in my head, but that's not something you said, which I'm kind of curious about. And whether that's intentional or whether, I mean, it also kind of connects to something I've been thinking about in terms of music yes but in particular hip-hop as a mm. way of being a space which creates a public to share knowledge mm. and to share experiences and whether that in of itself is a form of scholarship do you know what I mean yeah I mean you could say that rappers are kind of in a Gramsci understanding um, public intellectuals organic public intellectuals in that they they build up those kind of gatherings and those fan bases and those communities around them and then they communicate with them and cut out the um the media aspect you know it's a lot more of a sort of direct bond with people um so so i mean i i, I do have a master so i guess i could at a stretch be described as an academic but i think that academics um are required to be more dispassionate than I am and and less emotionally involved and whereas the music stuff a lot of it has is about emotions and is about um the human condition and 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 appealing to people's emotions for a political purpose that's what a lot of my stuff has been about that is kind of unbecoming of an academic I would say to kind of take that that kind of role mm, I hear that definitely um Although I think that, you know, there's a lot of us that are trying to interrupt that a bit. But I, I certainly agree that that tends to be the the status quo. And also it, it's almost as if academia doesn't allow that space mm. for it to be emotional. So we've still got a very long way to go until that's something that can really be incorporated. I yeah. do just want to come back, though, on um, this point of emotion as well, because and, and also like in terms of you know, which comes first, music or academia or scholarship and where do they all kind of fit together? A few a few months ago, you said to me, or you quoted, I think it's Foucault, I don't know, but I think it is. You said that music is about 
uh, creating windows of words where once there were walls, which is beautiful. I'm going to say it again. Windows of words where once there were walls. Now, the interesting thing, and it's stuck in my head, and I keep on coming back to it, and I was actually watching something that you had done, I think it was like 2018, so it was a while ago, where you were in an interview and you were talking about um, kind of how, at points, music hasn't actually been able to express something for you. That on the one hand, we can use music to kind of navigate difficult experiences that we might have. And you were talking about this in the context of losing your brother, but at the same time, that it can be incredibly difficult. For me, when I heard you say this, I immediately felt a an overwhelming desire to be like, okay, I need to ask you this question because coincidentally, I also lost my father and it's the one thing that I cannot write about. And what's interesting is, is that I always go back to music and in particular rap to reflect and to explore trauma. But it seems to me that maybe there's something about bereavement which is almost okay on one hand we could say that trauma is unspeakable right and that makes it difficult to articulate in any medium including music but on the other I was wondering whether bereavement whether there's something about this experience of loss that makes it very difficult to create from does that make Mm. sense yeah no I'm really really sorry for your loss and um thank you I think we went through it a bit at the um, the events at Brighton. Um, we touched on it a little bit about how the creation of music, not only listening to music, but also making music can have a direct influence on serotonin production. Our studies found that. And, and you know, in my case, in my case, I think I'm I'm less like that now, interestingly, but as a as a young person, I would say with, you know, with my brother's passing, but then also with Grenfell, um, the creating of songs about those two events and incidents were deeply, deeply soothing and, well, helpful in a way, allowed me to articulate the way I was feeling, gave me a sort of outlet for a lot of the, the, the anger, the, the, the sadness, it gave me a way of explaining it and understanding it. Um, So I think it can be different at different times. So for example, now I'm 36, um, I'm a little bit more measured about what I wouldn't wouldn't say publicly. So for example, in the song about about my brother, um, I definitely would make that very differently today. I would make it very, very differently. I was a lot more sort of unfiltered and just almost as if no one was listening because also at that time, you know, the maximum number of people that had ever heard of me was maybe a few thousand. Whereas now, not that it's at the level it was, say, 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, you know, I could put out songs on YouTube that millions of people would hear. It's not definitely nowhere near that level now. But yet and still, um, I have a greater appreciation of how those words can sort of hang around, stay around, how people can kind of interpret them, how people can then, you know, bring them up in conversations in in ways you might not necessarily want them to be brought up. So, um, 
I think with time, you you gain a little bit more um, respect for your own traumas and you handle them with a little bit more care. Well, that has been the sort of case with me, whereas when I was young, it was all about just getting it off my chest in a sort of very sort of liberal way of looking at expression as a sort of panacea to say, I, I express something and therefore it's a sort of means to an end. And that's and that's fulfilling a vital function. I think especially in the age of the internet where everything is kept forever and sort of frozen in time and you're sort of in this goldfish bowl simultaneous to looking in other people's goldfish bowls and that people can sort of live vicariously through each other, that they have a sort of sometimes a bit of a voyeuristic relationship through the internet. Um, I'm just a little bit more self-conscious probably about about things like that. But all in all, those things did help me get through, at least in the short term, uh, those moments. You know, and I do think also, you know, on the side of stuff with my brother also, there, there are parts of it that are sort of just completely numb that I haven't really, you know, delved much into. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of the kind of ways that that stuff manifests in people, I guess. I relate to a lot of what you just said. It's also, <clears throat> funnily enough, um, or not funnily enough, I have, like, sheer anxiety when I go to a cipher now because mm. everyone's like, okay, just go for it. And I'm like, there's no way I can because I'm so in my head about what's about to come out of my mouth that mm. I do not want to do that on a public stage. So it completely changes the the purpose I guess of writing and it makes sense that sometimes we kind of to some degree uh this is a strong word for it but it's also going to act as a segue to my next question so I'm going to use it we start self-censoring right and this idea of the the kind of social media and and public platforms is really important but also the idea of fluidity and the fact that if you do say something in a bar it could go on YouTube and that's it that's what you're defined by and actually we're seeing this I'm going to bring this back to drill slightly is that for me for example if I'm writing it often as a way to put I primarily write from anger and it's a way of me putting it somewhere so I don't carry that anger with me every day but if yeah, I didn't yeah. have music I would have to carry it but if I I think what's happening is that in the case of drill for example it could be people expressing whatever they want to express but they're held by it which becomes a massive problem yeah um, good point. and then it, it it turns into moving from a self-censorship into a, a campaign of censorship yeah, yeah. And obviously this is something that you're going through at the moment. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what's happening um, with the, the campaign. It's like to to censor you effectively. Not effectively, it's directly to censor you. Well, I have, you know, across the period of the last, I would say since the end of March, I have had at least four events um, cancelled. Uh, because the organisations that booked me were lobbied by lobby groups, a lot of whom actually identify as charities and are seen as such by the Charity Commission, uh, despite the fact that they have an umbilical connection with the Israeli embassy, that they work directly with it. Um, For instance, the particular campaign on Spotify is led by an organization called BICOM, which is the largest Israeli lobby 
organization in this country um, and it has a particular project called we believe in israel and the assertion is that my music is an incitement um, of violence uh, towards israelis um of course you can't you struggle to argue that legally in the court of law here because you'd have to prove how it had incited someone and that doesn't exist because no one's been incited to hurt anyone um, from listening to my music. But that's an extension of several policies that the Israeli state has um, vis-a-vis the Palestinians. So, for example, you have about 15 Palestinian journalists currently in Israeli jail on the allegation of incitement you know, for practicing journalism essentially. Um, You've even had children arrested and in prison on the charge of incitement on social media. This is by the Israelis, the arresting of Palestinian children. Um, So it's kind of an an extension of that logic to the British context and then the application of it against my music. However, it was a strategic um, folly by the Israel lobby to go to Spotify because they're engaging me on as many terrains as they can but Spotify is a far easier terrain for me to engage them on so for example in universities they have a particular lobby group that they target me with in the trade unions for example I was I was disinvited from the Tolpado Martyrs festival which um following a lobbying campaign by um, one of their lobby groups um, and also a secret letter being sent by the General Secretary of the GMB Union, Gary Smith, in which he referred to me as uh, Rahim when my name is Kareem. So (laughs) clearly he has a a difficulty with Arabic names, but he was reading directly in the letter. He's listing directly from a dossier that is very likely to have given been given to him by a particular Israel lobby group because I recognise the claims made in it. They, of course, are not evidenced in the letter and they're not something that he would say publicly because it would be legally actionable. Um, you know, we're in the midst of a, at least one uh, sort of legal action um, against a member of parliament for something they've said publicly, which they which is a is a, a false assertion um, about me. It's been it's been it's been a a big campaign really, um, in which it's involved the lobbying of different institutions, um, and each of those institutions have been targeted themselves. So, when you're getting the trade union congress to disinvite me from Tobago Martyrs Festival, you are trying to set a precedent. When you're getting the NUS to cancel my event, you're setting a precedent in the US and in universities, when you're getting Spotify to delete my music, then you're setting a precedent within Spotify. However, the Spotify space was a lot harder for them because they went directly with an organization that doesn't pretend it's not a lobby group. Hmm. So We Believe in Israel is very straightforwardly and explicitly an Israel lobby group. Other organizations are slightly less honest about their function. So when We Believe in Israel announced that they were doing this, we then reported it. And when we reported it, got widespread support from you know, Mark Ruffalo, a Hollywood superstar, from Noam Chomsky, 
from Avi Schleim of Oxford University, from uh, Special Rapporteur on Housing from the United Nations, um, a Queen of Jordan, you know, all types of people signed our petition against this campaign to push me off Spotify. So it was a tactical error um, by them to go to that uh, terrain to try and engage me. Um, so, you know, overall, I would say if we were to sort of give it a, uh, a, a sort of analysis of where the campaign to censor me is at and how well it's gone, um, I would say it's had medium to poor success. However, they've been able to push the NUS into launching an internal investigation into anti-Semitism because I was invited to, I was booked to perform at an NUS event. Now, that investigation is likely to, it's being taken as a given that I am persona non grata in the investigation. So it's unlikely to conclude that disinviting me was the wrong thing to do. But again, that will probably be used, pardon me, as a stick to beat me with, but also a stick to beat um, other mm. pro-Palestinian student groups and organisers with in general. And all of this is part of the bigger war against uh solidarity with the Palestinians, unfortunately, which has taken many different shapes and is happening in the artistic and in the political sphere, you know, on a daily basis. It's a well-funded, well-organized campaign, which encompasses the uh, activities of literally, and it sounds crazy, but worldwide thousands of organizations. Mm. So that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm a small I'm a small part of that. I'm a small part of that, but I'm 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 a, a more difficult. You know, a lot of people across these years, particularly the Corbyn years, have had their they they don't have the right of political subjectivity. They can't be a member of any party. They they they've lost their livelihoods. You know, people have attempted suicide. People have lost a lot to this very pointed policy. Um, of squashing solidarity with Palestinians. Um, so I'm, you know, in an infinitely more fortunate position than the vast majority of people that are targeted with this type of stuff because I have my own means of communicating with a lot of people. And actually, even what they're doing, you know, one of the things with the way social media has done is it's broken the monopolies on information and it's decentralised um, people's information sources and now I am in my own right a source of information to thousands of people at least it means that I can represent myself more directly and more clearly than those papers are able to misrepresent me mm, yeah I was just thinking exactly the same thing and basically this kind of this decentralized communication yes but also it's from I don't want to say there because I think it, it's happening from multiple different perspectives like as I've already mentioned in cases like drill for example it's this regulation and this surveillance this constant surveillance of what you're saying and actually I think this is a slightly a, a bigger conversation but maybe we're also in this moment uh in the society as if society is any one thing but this kind of this idea of cancelling mm. and I really really like what you said about this right to political subjectivity because I feel that this is constantly 
in question for everyone. It's yeah. the reason I don't have Twitter. I'm right. just like, I don't even want to go there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Not that I'm going to say anything. I'm just be asking people what their slashes are. But yeah. do you know what I mean? It's this kind of like constant living in this it's precarious fear of you must keep the norm or whatever this norm idea is. Yeah. Um, I yeah, think yeah, it's yeah. really, really important to recognise. But I also wonder whether there's anything that people can do to kind of push back against this. Like, is there anything, are you, in terms of, obviously you can have the the counter legal claims but is there anything else that's happening at the moment around um you know demonstrating against this, not necessarily demonstrating but acting against this censorship i think the key is to not adhere to the talking points sort of enforced upon you so one of the things that i never entertained was i never engaged with the idea that these were good faith assertions so I never got into defend, you know, anyone that has dealt with me over all of these years and the years that I've been a sort of political animal, as it were, um, know that any one of those people will know that I'm not um, motivated by any form of irrational hatred towards anyone. Um, and so therefore, I don't need to justify myself and waste my time because just the more oxygen I give the accusation, the the more I amplify it, let's be clear, this is a political campaign with specific objectives, and I am, at the moment, a target of it. You know, it's important to have that clarity and to assert that immediately when you're targeted in these ways. And then also, to which would we were, you know, fortunate with the sort of support that we got from people, was to assert that you're not isolated. Because if, if you make those two mistakes will be fatal. If you try to justify yourself according to a um, a logic which is imposed on you, and if you allow yourself to be isolated, you've lost, and you lose straight away, and you lose quick. Whereas if you actually point out, no, 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 I'm not the one isolated, this is my support, these are the people that agree with me, and actually this is what this is about, then generally, you know, generally, the organizations that may work with you will be far more likely to come out in your support rather than giving them, them the impression that there's sort of no smoke without fire, that there must be something inherently um, irrational about you, that you're, you know, that you're bad news, basically. Um, dealing with organization to organization that have canceled events has been interesting Um it has been interesting because they've uh, it's clear they're getting their arm twisted and i think the dynamic dynamic as to why they're getting their arm twisted how they're getting their arm twisted what they're being threatened with it differs from case to case but it's yeah it's interesting stuff to sort of dig in and delve into and get a grip on because sometimes you know emails or secret letters come out that show what has happened why it's happened and where the kind of direction of it has been so, yeah, that's a sort of interesting, interesting process. But I think also the key thing is to, and again, it was a lesson from COVID. Prior to COVID, 80 to 90% of my income had been from live shows. So I'd tour for a month solid a year and, and then do a few shows throughout the year. And I was able to live off that, um, luckily, as uh, you know, alongside income from Spotify. But 
when COVID came and took that away, what it forced you to do was sort of diversify and get into kind of other ways of communicating and speaking to people, you know, and, and, and media, you know, it astonishes me that these sort of journalists in the mainstream media basically argue for the status quo over and over again, or attack the latest um, scarecrow and, 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 and bogey, bogeyman and have been, you know, they get paid very, very well. You know, in the media, you get paid better than you do in music. As an independent artist, you're having to sort of hustle. And also, you know, the other thing with, with the music industry is it's it doesn't have, it. you know, it's bit by bit. So, you know, you might have a great six months and then a not so good six months. Whereas in the media, you're, you're getting a regular wage. And so it's a kind of a safer and more sustainable and more sustainable and more stable place to be. Mm. I wonder whether, um, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but it does just remind me like in terms of thinking about touring and the precarity of, I mean, effectively being, you know, self-employed, anyone that's self-employed, you don't know, you know, I was self-employed for years. When COVID came, I was like, well, what do I do? It's, it's yeah. literally impossible yeah. Um, it was it was definitely a, a shock to the system. Mm. But I'm also wondering, and I know that you know that I'm going to come around to this question because I've wanted to ask you this for a while. Um, <laughs> you did take a break from music, a hiatus. Um, and was that kind of centered around some of these issues or was it something entirely different? Or Because I can also imagine like, you know, it's a big weight that you have to carry. Um, being a public figure, being pro-Palestine, having to deal with a, a constant lobby against you, it's a lot. Was that kind of factoring into your reason to take a break? Yeah, I mean, part of the, it was part of it. Um, there were several different um, reasons, really. At that time, I, I was, I had a lot more passion than I had substance to kind of the things I was saying. A lot of it was very instinctively rebellious. And the problem with that is you will come up against things that sort of um, reveal how superficial a lot of your understanding of things is and your ideas. And I felt that I wanted to be able to be kind of free from the obligations that I felt is sort of the low key side of things to to really um, kind of study. And that's when I got the qualifications as an English teacher and as a personal trainer and I got my master's. So it was great. It was, you know, time well spent and it provided a foundation for me to then go out into the world and kind of understand things again. Also was part of London to Calais, um, an organization where we would, uh, we would organize convoys of people mainly from SOAS that spoke in languages of people in the camp in Calais. And we worked directly with Islington Law Center, with Bat Murphy, with different um, lawyers that were working pro bono to at that time bring people to the country um, uh, in uh, the Dubs Amendment of EU law, it meant that anyone that had a first degree relative in England could claim for asylum in England from another European country, another country in the EU, which you can't do now. But um, so I, you know, I translated on quite a few of those cases. We won three of the cases. Um, so I was doing stuff like that, you know, I mean, 
incidentally, I was still being stopped under Schedule 7 Terrorism Act in the um, airports when I was flying in and out um, and still going through that kind of stuff, um, regardless of the fact that I wasn't making music anymore. Um, but then in 2016, so that was 2012, 2016, I sort of realized these things that I was wrestling with on a very small level. I had way, way, way more potential if I was able to use the voice that I, you know, spent those years building um, to communicate the same kind of thing. So then I made the song Ahmed, which was largely inspired by that kind of experience. And, um, and yeah, got back into the music and then, you know, things went the way they did. And then the pandemic happened and, um, you know, things have kind of led to where we are now. It was definitely a good thing to do it um, at the time because without it, I think I'd be uh, at least intellectually a, a, a poorer person for it. But, you know, I have about 50 grand of... Uh, probably more now of uh, university uh, tuition fees debt with the student loan company because mm, of damn all. <laughs> because of that. So, I mean, uh, you know, I, I could have possibly managed that situation slightly better because, uh, you know, this is how they get us. They get us hooked onto the sort of fictional capital and then they, and they, and they, and they get us, you know, and 75% of people are um, estimated to, to will die with with that debt still hanging over them um so yeah i mean this is where we are have you read um uh what's it called there's a book there's a book uh there's many of them actually but there's <laughs> one in particular that i'm thinking of it's it's about um debt being okay i'm gonna have to frame this in a particular way it's basically saying that debt is a construction that it's not mm. It's not real, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Absolutely. it has material consequences, so it is definitely yeah, very yeah. real. No, um, no, but it's quite, it's quite an interesting um, little book. I can't remember who who it's by, what it's called. But well, one of the assertions about David Harvey, by David Harvey on this subject is that it's a, a sort of a tool of social control because exactly you is you are steering people away from, for instance, going into human rights law because generally they'd have to. Um, work without payment for a while and they can't afford to do that if they have a um, a, a debt from their student loans or you know what was it Chomsky I think said that people that have mortgages don't go on strike and so it's the same kind of logic in terms of you pumping out um, people who are um, at least you could say socially and politically obedient um, because they have to be um, because of the debt that you kind of bind them into mm. and you know power always has these ways of binding people into social arrangements that they wouldn't necessarily agree with if they had a choice and I think debt is one of those things that can help rope people into those things yeah absolutely sure. however I guess yeah. we have to come back to again Foucault where there is power there is resistance right mm. um and just to just to pick up on uh when you you said that you were instinctively rebellious you've got to get that on a t-shirt like that <laughs> I might get that on a t-shirt it's perfect I love it but it does make me wonder whether that kind of um was that kind of value always there for you through music or is that something that you were kind of like working out as you went 
yeah, I would definitely say working out as I went, but you know, the, the instinctive sort of rebellion side of it was, um, what, you know, there was, there was use in it and there was, you know, something that was to some extent socially useful, but, um, the problem with it is that it wasn't directed in ways that were very productive. You know, if you're instinctively um, rebelling, then you might just get into a fight with police officers, for example. That's sort of instinctive rebellion, but that's not a sort of well-thought-out way of achieving particular political objectives. And so I had to fashion a sort of political education um, in what way I could um, by kind of backing off a little bit away from this sort of audience that I had worked quite hard to kind of cultivate over those years and then figure out what exactly it was I wanted to communicate to that audience. Mm. That makes me think of something else as well that I heard you say somewhere, um, was that you, I shouldn't really say this, but I'm going to, but you were talking about that you you said something about not actually listening to hip hop. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not what you go to I'm gonna I was gonna say don't tell anyone and then remembered that we're recording so a bit late <laughs> for that um you know like I I write and I I work with drill etc but I that's not what I'm listening to it's, it's more yeah. or less jazz and drum and bass nice probably <laughs> at the same time even better nice. but what what are you actually listening to out of curiosity um so today what did I listen to um I I I do still listen to some some rap, but to be honest, mainly for nostalgic purposes. So recently I was listening to actually some Jimmy Cliff, The Harder They Come. Nice. Um, I saw him live once. It was really maybe, good. Maybe, maybe the Isley Brothers um, kind of soulful stuff. But also today specifically, um, I did something uh, with someone who had contacted me through the event that we did a few months ago. Um and it was judging a a competition for prisoners that had uh, did rap, hip hop, and grime. So I think that's something. It that was can... me that hooked you up. Yes, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Oh, but I'm it so was... glad you're doing it. Yeah, yeah, I did it today, um, and it was it was really a lovely um, experience. And it took me back actually to that time of sort of creating in a in a sort of less self conscious because there's a completely different way that you create when you think only I'm going to hear this to the way that you create when you think millions of people might hear this. No one can tell you that that's the same. That is a, a very deep and basic change in the way that you're producing that art. Um, but as I say, you know, it was wonderful uh, listening to these tracks and really, really talented people. And it, and it felt nice to sort of be able to gain this insight into, you know, because it's a very, very personal and intimate thing, especially rap, because it's such a direct form of communication. It's, you know, it's rare in this, you know, if you think over across the course of a day, maybe as an academic and maybe as a teacher, it's slightly different as, you know, lecturing and everything else. But generally, how many people that you speak to on a daily basis do you speak to for three or four minutes straight? Very few, right? But in a rap song, you are having somebody speak to you for three to four minutes straight. And so every sentence is triggering some type of uh, reaction from you. And uh, you know, thinking about 
the content and thinking about what these uh, these people are saying and then how it's interacting with you. And then you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, why am I choosing this song to sort of win this particular award? And why am I, you know, and yeah, it was lovely. It was lovely. It was good to really listen, you know, for once. And then to actually think about words. What what actually is this person saying? You know, what's the substance of this song? And uh, yeah, it was good. It was good. Because I think in a way, for a while, and probably when I, particularly when I did that interview, I was in quite a sort of academic mode and and saw at that time incorrectly music as a little bit sort of frivolous in a way because not only was I in the academic mode I was just coming out of Grenfell and when I look at it now I can see how very very clearly traumatized I am in that interview I'm not I'm not I shouldn't be doing an interview <laughs> at that point because I'm still you know literally right outside my window was still the uncovered tower. So there was a difference when the tower was covered and uncovered. And at the mm. time it was still uncovered. So I was living in a very, very intense place. And so at that time I viewed music as like, okay, well I use it as a tool for a political purpose, but hasn't particularly been successful. You know, I was quite nihilistic really at that time. Um, whereas I'm, I, you know, things have changed a bit since then. And, you know, I, I probably wouldn't allow myself to sound or be so dismissive of rap in the way I was in that interview. It's just sort of where my head was at. You know, yeah. I was spending all my time listening to lectures. I was spending all my time because I was thinking, you know, this is a a, a good use of your time. Um, you know. I, I mean, I hear that. I think it's okay. You know, like it, mm. it's, it's okay to have these kind of, things that seem like contradictions and are actually not like to to mm. love a genre to hate a genre at the same time and at different times you know like I think that's just yeah, part yeah, of the sure. experience of being a listener I just want to flag up as well like I'm so 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 happy that you went down today um <laughs> so just for everybody listening we're talking about Kerstler Arts that's K-O-E-S-T-L-E-R and they work um with people in incarcerated in prisons immigration centers uh and young offender institutes um and they are my favorite organization in the world I think I think they're really 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 powerful um it, and... it, you know it's just I'm so sorry to interrupt no, you go ahead remember something it also um reaffirmed to me the function of rap at a young age was actually cultivating a sense of empathy where I didn't really necessarily have it or where the society wasn't necessarily giving it to me before so for example you have a song which I listened to in the last few days, a song by Jay-Z and Beanie Siegel called Where Have You Been on the Dynasty album, in which they're talking about missing their fathers who had had some presence, but not the presence in the way that either of them were happy with or wanted in their lives. And I remembered listening to that. And imagine, imagine if every child was to spend three or four minutes listening to somebody speak about their pain on a regular basis. Mm. How can you tell me that's not leading to more empathetic adults? 
but but see the thing is on this is that it's it's yeah. twofold i 100 percent mm. agree with you i think it's fundamental but what's interesting as well and, and i've been working with cursor for many years um and i have this a lot of stuff i want to articulate about this but there's something in not only listening but for the person writing or rapping or speaking or whatever they're doing being heard yeah, you yeah. know and when you're incarcerated and you don't have uh necessarily the materials available to you to start distributing things or whatever or you don't have the um what was the word that you used earlier the political subjectivity to express yourself in that way these moments become even more important and then reciprocal and i think yeah. that's why music is so radical because it is reciprocal it has to be do you know mm. what i mean um i'm not saying that you you know you there isn't value in writing for yourself of course there is but something yeah yeah can transcend when it when it's reciprocal um yeah, which is very very interesting um absolutely. yeah I'm, I'm very happy that you were able to pop down to kersla okay so i think it's time for what's the three the variation <laughs> of the question that i asked everyone okay. what what are three things that you would do or that you would like to be doing if you weren't in your current career i'm going to admit that my number one is I swear it's true, would be to be a flamenco dancer. Well. Because why not? <laughs> why not? Or a, yeah, yeah. or a florist. I know nothing about flowers, really, but I just quite fancy it. I think it'd be a bit of a break from drill. <laughs> right. I mean, well, I have a blue belt in Shaolin Kung Fu. Is it? Um, and I would have loved to have taken that more seriously. And I don't know if I, you know, to sort of compete professionally, I think, would take a bit of a leap of faith in terms of your own brain. And I'm not particularly in Shaolin, but say it was Muay Thai, which I've also done, and boxing, which I've also done, but not to the same extent I've done Shaolin Kung Fu. But I think it would have been nice to have taken it seriously enough to at least be a black belt by now, um, you know. Next is brown belt, then is black belt. You know, I mean... But it's. I guess it depends what you're in it for. But I think if I had had more time possibly to take stuff like that a little bit more serious and been a bit more committed to it earlier um, than I have been, um, what else would I do if I... But remember, just... we are definitely... I'm going to be a flamenco dancer, so we are fully <laughs> in a fantasy world. <laughs> fully. Yeah. Never taken a flamenco dance class in my life. So I'm definitely no I brand mean... out there. I mean, you know, because one of the things also, which seems to be because of my uh, music, my, you know, my travel to the United States is not authorised um, as of my last attempt. So, I, you know, there would have been, it would have been an interesting world if I didn't have this kind of quite large digital footprint that um, Im implies certain political orientations that make life a little bit more kind of uh, interesting in certain contexts. So it would be interesting to sort of live life a little bit less, you know, nailing my position to the mast and uh, kind of having these sort of very, very strong political opinions that were out there for the world to see. It might be quite interesting to sort of experience life in a different way. Mm. Um, I also wish that I um, I studied Spanish a little bit, but I would have loved to have um, learnt Spanish properly. So basically what you could be then is a pilot with no issues with borders or visas and you could wear your instinctively rebellious t-shirt 
I think it's perfect. That that is an alternative uh, reality for sure. (laughs) For your your third thing that you'd be doing if not in your current career? I think that I I could see myself um, working in a primary school because I do love being around kids and and, and with kids. And I I do sometimes you get the feeling that when people dedicate themselves to these big macro issues, they forget a lot of the important parts of social interactions that take place on the smaller level because they're busy thinking about these sort of big um, world issues. And with children, it's all about those micro interactions because that's what develops them. So uh, I think that, yeah, working working with kids would have been amazing. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. Maybe one day. Right? <laughs> yeah, time. It's still, it's still an option. Nice. I like it. Um, okay, so imagining myself as a primary school teacher as well and thinking like that's not yeah, it's not gonna work no. I, don't, I don't have the patience <laughs> for that I like the idea but no, no I'll just be a dancer yeah. instead um <laughs> anyway tell us where can people find out more about you um and also I'm thinking maybe hitting up your Spotify is probably a good idea yeah yeah feel free please do listen to the stuff on Spotify you can follow me on Twitter. Um, it's uh, Loki Online with a zero rather than an O on Twitter. Or you can follow me on Instagram, which again is Loki Online. Perfect. And while you're there, you can follow me on Instagram at Bandacanton. That's W-A-N-D-A. Um, as I said, I'm not on Twitter because I'm scared of being cancelled. Uh, but you can find me there. <laughs> or my website is vandecanton.co.uk. Thank you for listening to... Three ain't a crowd. Don't forget to subscribe to help us reach other listeners and to keep up to date with the upcoming episode. Thank you very much to Loki for joining us. Thanks and we will see me. you next time. Great.